Let me start off by saying I have no idea what I'm doing. I've never done a podcast like this, in which I'm the one doing all the work and talking. Normally, when I'm asked to be on one of these things, I just talk and the other people do all the work. So I apologize if this is absolutely terrible, but I appreciate you sitting here, even if it's just for this one moment to go through this experience with me, because I think it's going to be helpful for anyone that listens to it. That's the obvious point, but it's also a good exercise for me to figure out how some of this stuff works as maybe one day this will be more important. So let me start off with why and what's going on here. Last semester, I've got ahead of myself. So if you don't know me, my name is Eamon Powers. I go to, uh, I'm, <laughs> yeah, see, terrible at this. Anyway, yeah, my name is Eamon Powers. I am a hopefully soon to be doctoral candidate at Old Dominion University, in which I'm studying instructional design and technology. I have some specific research interests but uh, I'll get to those later. Basically, I've been going through the program and I'm really close to getting to the end. And last semester, I had to take one of my key foundational courses, which was qualitative methods. Right? And if you're a researcher or you're someone familiar with research, you'll understand that there's essentially two different realms of um, research methodology. Uh, and a mixture of the two, obviously. But the, the two basic realms when it comes to social science and maybe greater science in general is quantitative, uh, which is essentially empirical evidence that can be measured. Um, measurement is kind of the key there, right? And qualitative, right? And qualitative essentially accepts that the experience you're going to get when researching or receiving researching is not measurable. It is going to be a ma matter of qualia. It's going to be a matter of the feeling that you get, the emotion, the vibe, you know, to use a term like that. And so basically you've got yourself into two sects. You have quantitative, which is um, we're going to test things, we're going to have hypothesis, and we're going to measure how well our hypothesis was. And then you have qualitative, which is... Um, very much so at the interpretation of both the writer and the reader. What's interesting about this was I think I went into qualitative methods thinking it was one thing, and it's really something quite different, um, which is great. I still don't think I'll very much, I, I still don't think I'll do it very much, um, and that has nothing to do with why qualitative, what I feel about qualitative methods. In truth, at the end of the course, I felt incredible about it, and I felt that it's uh, a completely worthwhile uh, endeavor. Uh, but if I was going to do qualitative methods, I, I do not think I would even bother doing it in an academic setting. And, and I think that is primarily the reason why, as I am in an academic setting, I'm not gonna focus on it. Um, because I think if we're going to be talking about um, qualitative methods and, and stuff like that, if it's going to be matters of the heart and it's gonna be matters of um, opinion to some extent um, and going to be matters of humanity well I just don't want to put that in APA formatting I guess I'd rather put it in formats like this like a podcast or maybe a movie or maybe something else as an instructional designer uh, which is you know what I 
<laughs> kind of uh, am from time to time. Um, I see the medium that you choose to present your material as the means in which you're communicating the material. In reality, what we know, at least in the reality that I, I know, is a lot of people have really great ideas, fantastic ideas even, but oftentimes it's more important to be able to communicate those ideas. Um, and you probably have some experience with this, anyone has some experience with this, you know, seeing someone uh, on TV or hear them on the radio and they, they do something that you had thought of a long time ago, right? And they're like, oh, I had that idea. Or they, like my dad used to say this all the time, um, uh, they stole my idea. There's, there's microphones in the living room or whatever, right? Uh, and in reality, it's just that most of us have those ideas. The difference is, uh, what do you do with them, right? That's, that's really what it comes down to. But I'm sorry, I went on a huge digression about qualitative methods there. Anyway, the, the, the context of why the project that you're now listening to a podcast with uh, you know, comes out of this class. And the basic idea was I needed to do a qualitative uh, study. And the qualitative study had to end with a paper, uh, a long paper, uh, as all academic uh, courses at the PhD level require. Uh, but it also needed to go through some very specific instruments. Uh, one of them was an unobtrusive data collection, uh, which would, uh, in non-COVID times, likely have been some kind of observation of someone doing uh, the activity, that uh, the phenomena we were observing. Uh, and then there was a focus group, and then there were some one-on-one -on -one interviews. And in a future episode of this uh, mini-series, uh, which I'll get to in a moment here, uh, you'll get to hear about all of those things. All right. Um, so with that being said, when I got the uh, assignment, I thought to myself, you know, I kind of want to, uh, this is something that maybe I'm not going to do a lot of, right? This is something that I'm not sure I'm going to really do a lot of qualitative uh, methods namely because just the nature of the work I do and the type of research I'm interested in doing. I'm interested in the opinions and the feelings of, of, my, of um, the respondents of my interventions, uh, but at the, at the same time, I am interested in, you know, quantifiable proof, right? Uh, proof as proof can be, which we can get into an entire podcast about what proof is. But um, so being that I was going to be in this different realm, this qualitative methods realm, um, it became really important to me to try to do something unique um, and do something that was more meaningful than just a, a paper. And don't get me wrong, a paper is fine, uh, but I've written a lot of papers and, um, and my professors, I'm sure, read them. Um, and, but, but, you know, that's essentially you're writing to an audience of one. And I feel like there's a lot of things that I've written um, and, and I'm sure my peers have written that they're really proud of and uh, and they wind up, I'm sure they get the, anything they're really proud of winds up getting used in some later work. Um, but, but at the same time, it's something that I, I think maybe we should be doing in, in academia, we should be doing a better job of, you know, getting even our assignments and even getting, you know, discussion boards out more in the open. Um, and, and, and the reason I think that is because, to some extent, the, these assignments and these papers, they, they represent such a tremendous amount of effort and such a, uh, there's a tremendous amount of content that's built in them, and then they just sit in a Google, uh, Google Drive folder and do absolutely nothing. And I wanted to stop doing that. So I chose to use this qualitative methods course to kind of facilitate that. And so very early on, in my research design that um, my professor approved, 
was to do this mini series podcast, right? And and I'll also release all of the um, documentation that goes along with it. So some of these kind of longer form papers, uh, not super long form. We're talking like three or four thousand words. I think the last one's, I think the last one's ten thousand words. But um, yeah, the the basic idea here was how am I going to motivate people to participate uh, in this study? Because I, in future episodes that we're going to get into. Um, you know, I needed people to participate, right? So um, essentially how that worked out was I said, hey, listen, um, I went to LinkedIn and was like, hey, I, I, I would like if you would participate in the study and my plan is to package this into a six-part mini-series um, and, and also release all the paper that happens at the end. Is that cool? And pretty much universally, everyone was uh, everyone that I spoke to was was really down with that. And I'll get into that a little later. I'll get into that in another episode, um, and and how we pick those people in and how that all figured out. So you're going to get kind of a twofer here because the name of the uh, as we're ten minutes into this first uh, foray here, um, the name of this podcast is "What Does It Mean to Be an Instructional Designer?" And I'm going to get to that here in just a second. Um, but you're also going to get a healthy dose of how I did this study. Uh, and I hope that's okay. And if it's not, and, uh, you know, you want to turn it off, that's obviously completely fine. Um, what I learned almost mostly in this study is research, research can be for an audience of one, so long as it's meaningful to that audience of one. And in this study, uh, as well as this entire topic, um, was really meaningful and it was really beautiful in the end um and it really changed the way i looked at my profession and changed the way i looked at the people that were within my my profession and it was a a change for the positive change for the better um so without further ado uh what we're going to do is i'm actually uh i'm going to get i'm actually going to read you the research proposal right the the thing that i um wrote in the very beginning and i just wanted to really kind of set the stage for what was going to happen here and what was the thought process in in going down this um, path. So without further ado, um, this is what it means to be an instructional designer. So I'm a few months away from sitting for my comprehensive exams and I've never been more confused as to what the purpose of my studies are. I am in the Instructional Design and Technology program at Old Dominion University, and at no fault of my advisors or professors, I find myself asking routinely, what is the point of our work? How do our efforts as instructional design researchers positively impact the people of the world? What does instructional design even mean? Now let me be clear. I would consider myself knowledgeable of the various tools and methods of instructional design and I'm extremely familiar with the concept of what it means to be an instructional designer in the real world. But I also know that I myself as an instructional designer in a corporate setting do very little in terms of what I would consider to be instructional design work. And in speaking with others throughout the years, I feel I'm not alone in this finding. Thus, in this study, and thus on the podcast you're essentially going through, I plan to ask that very question. What does it mean to be an instructional designer? Beyond the text and methods discussed in academia, what does an individual instructional designer actually do in the real world? And how do their activities compare to others technically performing the same profession in differing industries? 
The proposed purpose of this phenomenological, I never can say this right, so phenomenological study <laughs> is to understand the lived experience of instructional designers in their professional lives from a social constructivist perspective, recognizing that each individual will have their own unique reality. I'm specifically interested in what instructional designers are doing, physically doing, on a daily basis across industry and academia. At this stage in the research, an instructional designer is defined as a person who identifies as being an instructional designer and has that be their primary profession. So a little bit of it on the background, you know, just in case you're coming into this with absolutely no, um, uh, as my professor did actually, even if you're coming into this with almost no backing of uh, what an instructional designer is. And that, so I'll get into that a bit here. So, um, and this is more just right from the paper, which I'll share in the links here. Before we can consider what an instructional designer does, we must first consider what instructional design is. The term instructional design is interpreted in various ways based both upon grounded theories and practical applications. And that's from Sheriff and Cho from 2015. While it is simple to say instructional design relates to teaching and learning, there exists widely ununified concepts within the field which often aid in the confusion and misinterpretations, misinterpretations of both the field's basic foundations as well as its most critical contributions. Therefore, key elements of instructional design can be overlooked or even ignored by groups owing uh, to a lack of knowledge or context. Recent history has shown light of this basic reality. With nearly 20 years of research on effective ways to design internet-based distance, uh, distance education, the COVID-19 pandemic caught most, if not all, educational systems completely flat-footed. Instructional interventions utilized across most of the world, and especially within the United States, did not reflect even some of the most basic considerations which would have been addressed in an instructional design process. Perhaps one of the reasons for, the, for what I just said is in the field's challenges, in the field being instructional design at this point, uh, to appropriately scope the body of work accomplished by the practitioners and researchers whom represent the field. So there's been some really great researchers, specifically Janice Whiskey, Pichette, and I'm sure I totally butchered those names, back in 2013, uh, point, pointed to 16 different definitions of the field of instructional design since 1963. And that's uh, disturbing. Right. And I'm sure other professions have equal problems when it comes to determining what their uh, the definition of their work is. But, you know, a doctor uh, in like 1600 was likely a doc is similar to a doctor now, even though their methods might have changed. The expectation of what that person was doing is quite similar. Right. Um, they were healing people. Right. Same thing with a teacher, a teacher's job, uh, although might, maybe might very, very drastically different. Um, is, uh, you know, in, in method is still the same to, to help people learn, right? You know, so we have this, we have a lot of professions, these maybe monolithic professions out there that they, their definitions don't change. If you're an aerospace engineer, you're an aerospace engineer. But with an instructional designer, it seems like, um, it seems like we have this kind of mercurial, we can do it all method of, uh, speaking about ourselves, right? And the 1963 definition, which is what I'm going to get back into, back into the paper here, um, uh, is is 
kind of a, a great example of that. It's one of the first instructional design definitions. The first one was back in 1958, and this was still when it was called audiovisual communication. But this, uh, the, the one that I'm going to uh, quote for you here is by um, Eli, and it, and it is one of the first ones. And so uh, I'll just read it off. So audiovisual communications, uh, which at this point is what we're considering instructional design, is the, that branch of educational theory and practice primarily concerned with the design and use of messages which control the learning process. It undertakes the study of the unique and relative strengths and weaknesses of both pictorial and non-representational messages, which may be employed in the learning process for any purpose, and the structuring and systemizing of messages by men and instruments in an educational environment. These undertakings include the planning, production, selection, management, and utilization of both components and entire instructional systems. Its practical, practical goal is the efficient utilization of every method and medium of communication, which can contribute to the development of the learner's full potential. So this definition uh, is, is both still relevant in some res regards, but also obviously dated uh, with some of the language that's used in it. But what we have to kind of recognize here is, you know, in that definition, you're essentially talking about three completely different things. One is about message design, right? The other is about project planning. And then, then finally, you've got this other one that's it's about like interpersonal communication. And I know those sound like nuanced things, but those are each in their own regard, kind of separate fields. So the study that I went out to do, right, what does it mean to be an instructional designer and the subject of this podcast is not an attempt to redefine the field of instructional design. Uh, that's not necessary. Um, I will not, I, I'll also, in this, I'm not really going to be going into the history of the field's definition. There are plenty of people that have already done that fantastically, whole books written on the topic. Um, but the definition that they, we just went through is still telling of the challenges instructional designers face today. So starting with the first sentence, the design and use of messages which control the learning process, Eli, 1963, page 18. Control is the, control, you know, control is the operative word here for discussion. At the time of the definition, behaviorism, which is an instructional theory, dominated the learning landscape. And like dudes like B.F. Skinner, who's my boy, um, absolutely considered it possible to control the learning process. Um, you know, so long as you controlled essentially every possible scenario that can affect learning, which we know is essentially impossible. All right. So despite the field and the rest of society somewhat moving away from the behaviorist thought process, the idea of the instructor designer controlling the learning process is still quite prevalent even today. Some of the loudest voices in the room of instructional design indicate that it is the designer and not the teacher who should have control in the learning environment. And that's none other than Richard Clark back in 2009 uh, said that in a paper. So the problem with this thought process is naturally the very idea of control and the design uh, and that a design of anything could have total control, which we know it just simply cannot. And thus from the definition's very first sentence, we're aiming for a maxim, instructional designers are aiming for a maxim that can never be achieved. Um, and if that's not troubling enough, the rest of the defini definition does not help matters. Uh, take this section, uh, the structuring and systemiz uh, systemizing of messages by men and instruments in an educational environment. Um, 
and then he gets in uh, Eli gets into planning, production, selection, management, and utilization of both components and entire instructional systems. Um, and while I think that any one of us can corroborate the general systems nature of any learning experience, and systems nature is essentially the interconnectedness of intentional and unintentional uh, items, it's very difficult to concede that an instructional designer would be well suited to accomplish each of the roles, each the planning, the production, the management, and the utilization. We're saying one person's gonna do all of that. But even today, the instructional designer is expected to do that very thing. And in uh, the next episode, I can prove this, right? Like that there's, there's reality to that problem. So recent articles have detailed extensively the multitudes of tasks that are continuously expected of instructional designers in various roles. Um, and I list a ton of them here. Bawa and Watson, 2017. Lowethal, Wilson, 2010. Sheriff and Cho, 2015. Van Rouge, 2011. Uh, and so on. Um, the issue, the, the issue that I, I think anyone that's familiar with the field and anyone that's interested in getting into the field, the issue with this is it's a multidisciplinary, uh, yeah, multidisciplinary role. Is that it breeds a necessity for the quote, you know, jack of all trades, master of none mentality within the field, uh, and this perpetuates various levels of different performance expectations and questionable methodologies in the industry, right? And further on to this point, even amongst those in academia, there seems to be a challenge understanding just exactly what an instructional designer does. Um, this may be best elaborated in recent research into the use of established instructional design models in design applications. And so that's Stefaniak and Mizzou uh, in 2020, just last year. They wrote this really incredible article that, that went into uh, what models are actually being used. So if you have any experience with instructional design, there's tons of these models out there, right? And the, you know, one of the models that's like most prevalent that you, if you're an instructional designer on day one, you're probably gonna hear about is the Addy model. And the Addy model uh, is, is you know, a, it's, a, it's a process, right? It's, it's not an instructional framework. It's, a, it's essentially a procedural, it's like a project management framework more than anything. It's a checklist. Right, and there's there's tons and tons of variants of this. Um, ton, it very, the, there's a ton of instructional design models, you know, from R two D two to yes, that's a real one, four uh, CID to SAM. Uh, you're gonna find a lot of this, right? Rapid prototyping, and then we get into things like HPT, like human performance theory and stuff like that. And you know, when it, when push comes to shove, whether you're talking is calling it Addy or you're calling it waterfall, these things are. That's exactly what they are. They're, they're project management methodologies. What does project management have anything to do with uh, designing learning messages? The answer is it doesn't, right? But the process to design learning messages likely does follow along with a, a logical model, right? And this gets you know kind of deeper into the whole like, is this an art or is this a science? And I'm not going to get too far into that because I'm going to let some of the really intelligent people that um, for whatever reason agreed to be on this podcast with me, uh, I'm going to let them do that. Um, but, you know, what's interesting with the article that Stefaniak and, and Zoo wrote in 2020, you know, they found that over the last 10 years, uh, so 20, they did 2009 to 2019, uh, there were very few studies in academia concerning the application of a defined instructional design model meaning the people that come up with the models are also not willing to even use them. They're not even using them, right? So what? what? Uh, and, and 
truthfully, there were more new models being proposed at a greater rate, greater rate than research being done to verify that the old models worked. And I'd, I would venture to say that that's a troubling sign, that that indicates that we're not trusting of, uh, trusting or interested in proving the previous models, whether they work or not. We just want to create something new. And I understand the desire to want to create something new. Hell, I want to create something new. I'm creating something new right now. Um, that may or may not be good, but, um, you know, so I get the desire to be novel, but if, if the basic idea is to be researchers, then it's important that we recognize that if there are best practices, if there are things that we can learn from, from, from academia or from real life, it is important for us to actually learn those things rather than just say everything before I showed up was crap and here's something new, right? That, that's not really great. So the ultimate, uh, ultimately, the researchers found that the instructional designers and researchers, uh, they were de developing their own unique versions of instructional design models uh, at, and I'm quoting uh, Stefania Ginzu here, at an exponential rate. And I'd say that's troubling because, you know, the greater the number of models that we're going to create here, you know, ultimately what's going to wind up happening is exactly what we do find happening. We just have a continued spread out of what it means to be an instructional designer. And that sets us up well for, you know, the, kind of the closing part of this first podcast here, right? So um, from these findings, um, I think we find the role of instructional designer to be a challenging one for the individuals who hold this title in the workplace environment. Uh, you know, if industry and academia have trouble defining the very field of work of instructional design, how does that affect the everyday lived experience of the instructional designer? If, if academia and industry can't agree on what an instructional designer does, then how does an instructional designer position themselves in the workforce or in academia? How do they even have that conversation? Because in an interview, how long is an interview going to be? Is an interview going to be two days long? How long would someone need to explain what an instructional designer does? And are we setting people up to fail? And I, I can't stand that. I don't think we should... In, in any way, I, I think it's a, a tremendous disservice to both the field and, and uh, the individuals within it to set them up to fail. I just think that's really sad, right? So the goal of the study ultimately, because I don't know the answer to some of these questions, right? I don't know the answer to most of these questions. The goal of the study was to give um, a wide sampling of individuals who participate in the role of instructional designer professionally a chance to speak and ultimately have their voices heard. And so what we're going to get into in the subsequent episodes is the, first, the next one, uh, which, which you know you can listen to now, um, is about the unobtrusive thing. So what I did was uh, it, we get into some job descriptions. Uh, I peruse LinkedIn, which is super fun, which is great. And then we get into some really great um, interactions with um, the participants in the study, right? And the participants in the study did some really great work with me uh, and I'm super appreciative of them. So make sure that they will get plenty of shout outs uh, and all that stuff. Um, so closing up here, you know, I, I asked everyone uh, going into the study three questions, right? One, what does it mean to be an instructional designer, right? And what are they doing with their time at work, right? Two, I asked them how much effort are they expending on specific elements of instructional design, uh, you know, meaning models, 
or other job elements? Like, what are they actually, you know, uh, are they doing any models? Are they doing, are they taking things from academia? Or are they more or less just winging it with the tools that are available to them? And then ultimately, are their voices being heard? Are the, uh, are they being respected? Are they, um, are they respected in their field? Are they respected in their profession? Do the people that are their bosses understand their contribution to the team? Those are the things that I thought were really important when we're trying to define what it means to be an instructional designer. And so I appreciate you taking the time today uh, to listen to this initial foray into podcasting. Uh, if I'm rambling or monotone, man, I hope not. That would be really lame. Uh, but I appreciate it. And please tune into the next one uh, to go on this journey with us. Have a great day.